you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. When I was a kid, one of my heroes was my Grandpa Charlie. He was a great Christian man. He was a self-made man. At the age of 14, he was driving a taxi cab in Chicago. He didn't even have a high school diploma, but went on to start his own scrap metal business that was extremely successful. He actually became a multimillionaire at a young age. Sure, I partly looked up to him because I wanted to be a millionaire as well, but I also loved that he gave so much money away to the church, to charity, and to worthy causes. But one thing I never saw my grandfather do is show much emotion, at least sad emotions. He didn't like it when we cried either. He was one of the generation that was very tough and very stoic. One vivid memory of him is that whenever I complained about having a headache, he refused to give me an aspirin or even a Tylenol. Instead, he just told me to stop thinking about it and it would go away. For some reason, that didn't work for me too often. Today's world of openly shared emotion, most people seeking therapy, and a large amount of human beings being on medication for mental illnesses would be totally foreign to Grandpa Charlie and most of that greatest generation as well. After all, he went through much tougher world events and personal situations than most of us have gone through in a lifetime. No wonder he thought a headache was no big deal. It is sort of ironic that the person who hero-worshipped his grandfather went on to become a biblical counselor. If I followed Grandpa Charlie's example, I would have either found another career path altogether or just tell every counselee to get over it, or you'll be fine, just stop thinking about it so much. On the one hand, I'm glad that generations after my grandfathers became much more willing to talk about how they're feeling, share about their problems, and ask for help. But on the other hand, it is becoming clear that we have gone too far. We are far too open about personal problems. We're often obsessed with feelings especially having to feel happy rather than sad all the time. We have unfortunately become a therapeutic culture, a culture that continues to multiply mental illnesses, a culture that believes everyone should be in therapy all the time. I know this sounds like I'm about to kill the golden goose. Where would I be if people didn't have emotional, mental, spiritual, and relational problems? Of course, I'm all about people getting help for their problems. But like anything else that is good, we can take it too far. So we need to push back on the therapeutic culture a bit and be careful that we're not embracing and absorbing it as Christians wholeheartedly. Let's dig down deep and do a little analysis of this very modern phenomena that would make my grandfather very uncomfortable. There are a lot of different ways I could go about discussing the therapeutic culture over this 30-minute episode. What I don't want to do is just go into some sort of rant that may be therapeutic to me, but not very helpful for us. 
So instead, I will rely heavily upon a 2003 opinion article that does an excellent job of sounding the alarm of this cultural phenomenon. Yes, I said 2003. Almost 20 years ago, the therapeutic culture was already established to such a degree that it could be analyzed. Now, this particular article uh, is found in the UK Guardian, so it is from a distinctively British point of view. But it still applies to most countries in the West, including America. So I will read most of it to you and comment along the way. Hopefully, it will not lead us to just lament about our culture, but instead to respond well as Christians thinking biblically about our problems. So here we go in our reading time. The title of this article is, Happiness is Being Sad. Now that's a great title, isn't it? And here's the subtitle. From Adam Ant to Nick Hornby, everyone seems to be opening up about depression, but is the therapy culture actually making us ill? A great subtitle as well. Now, just in case you're not familiar with Adam Ant, he's a British singer. And Nick Hornby, he's a British author. In the early 2000s, they became very public with their mental illnesses. Today, we have more and more celebrities, athletes, and even Olympians speaking out about anxiety and stress and depression and many other problems. So yes, it does seem like everyone is opening up about depression and other issues. But you heard the intriguing question at the end of that subtitle. Is the therapy culture actually making us ill? Well, as we consider that question, let's get into the article. And here we go. If you give it your little finger, it'll soon have your whole hand. Sigmund Freud said of psychoanalysis in 1900. He had obviously seen the future. Britain in the 21st century means speaking freely and frankly about the state of our minds, about being depressed or being anxious or taking antidepressants. Our conversations are littered with psychobabble. Now, it's interesting. The author goes back to Freud, who, of course, is the father of psychoanalysis and is really the father of all modern psychotherapy and counseling. He himself would be astounded at how many of the terms he coined are used in day-to-day -day conversation today. How freely we talk about our mental state and emotional state and our problems. The author continues, as sociology professor Frank Ferretti says in his new book, Therapy Culture, we live in a culture that takes emotions very seriously. We admit freely to breakdowns, depression, mania, anxiety, any number of mental illnesses. Indeed, in some circles, it would be seen as very poor form not to do so. Now, I've never had the chance to read Ferretti's book, but it certainly sounds like an intriguing one, doesn't it? Again, the opening observation is what we see even more today. The therapeutic culture does take emotions very seriously. And in many circles, even the church, we are required to do so. We're required to take those emotions seriously. Or we would be required to go to therapy to learn to get in touch with our feelings. Well, let me continue our reading time. A friend of mine recently met some friends from his university days. What did they talk about? depression mostly. This caused much bonding and discussion. To belong nowadays, it helps to have been there and to have paid the price. 
Britain spent 38 million pounds on self-help books in the past 12 months. Meanwhile, the British Association of Counseling and Psychotherapy has seen a 160% increase in membership in 12 years. And use of antidepressants has tripled in the past decade. Last week, the Priori, the UK's leading independent provider of addiction treatment, sensing that the time was right, took the unprecedented step of advertising for clients in national newspapers. Fittingly, the Institute of Ideas is holding a one-day symposium next month that will explore, as they put it, the powerful influence of the therapeutic imperative in contemporary society. Now think, this is all before COVID. In the therapeutic culture, we not only have to share all our struggles, but we're only validated if we actually have problems other people have for being there, for having the same things. Now, from a biblical standpoint, we should value bearing one another's burdens out of love for Christ and for one another. But a therapeutic worldview is not really about that. It's certainly not really about change. It's simply about emoting, about admitting you have problems that you have to cope with forever. And yes, as the author said, in America, it's even worse. Self-help books are a billion-dollar industry. Psychotropic medications are through the roof. So let's read more. Dr. Michael Fitzpatrick, a GP in Northeast London for 20 years, says that many more patients now say they are depressed and anxious than would have done in the past. He says, we all speak the language of self-esteem now. People talk in this sort of therapeutic discourse. He thinks the confessional daytime programs from Oprah Winfrey to Jerry Springer have popularized this way of understanding ourselves. But it's not only daytime TV that has picked up on our newfound fixation with mental health. Broadsheet newspapers, smart magazines, prize-winning books, and primetime TV and radio are all now packed with stories of madness and misery. That's sort of funny, but true. As we've been talking about during this All Things Culture series, every culture has a unique language. We pick up that language in all sorts of ways and all sorts of places. So I would agree with Dr. Fitzpatrick that the therapeutic culture has been communicated through daytime talk shows. Remember that Oprah spun off Dr. Phil as well. It is also spread, though, in magazines, newspapers, and now, today, blogs and podcasts. And let's not forget social media, which has enabled the therapeutic culture to literally explode. I heard one commentator recently say that the word sad has left our lexicon. We don't talk anymore about being sad, but typically use much stronger language, including most often depressed. So how much is normal sadness that people experience today and not really depression? But I digress. We'll move on with the article. The author writes, a small selection from recent months. Nick Hornby talks openly about being in therapy on Desert Island Discs. George Best hopes that Prozac will give him a new personality. Adam Ant admits to suffering from manic depression. The actress Emily Lloyd confesses to a decade-long battle with mental illness. Paul Gascioni is diagnosed on C4 and found to be suffering from depression, attention deficit disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. 
The BBC is working on a major series called Burnt Out Britain. Danuta Keen at the bookseller confirms that there are an awful lot of books written about depression. Addiction is also amazingly popular. This is a huge market. We also, she says, love big celebrity memoirs which detail this sort of struggle. Why does she think this stuff sells so well? Maybe it's baby boomers, she suggests. Surely the most neurotic generation in history. Now, it may be true that baby boomers are very neurotic and obsessed with all things therapeutic, but I don't think they're the most neurotic. It seems each generation seems to be making that claim as this culture gets more firmly established, this therapeutic culture of ours. Instead of embracing the truth of sin and a fallen world, we're all just messed up or addicts or mentally ill. And did you catch the comment that this is such a huge market? So are authors really trying to help people or just taking advantage of what is popular to talk about? Well, let's continue with this insightful article. The author writes, So what does it all mean? Is all this frankness and attention to our interior lives a good thing? Certainly increased awareness of mental illness, increased visibility, has meant less stigma and more treatment that is more accessible. The climate definitely isn't right for The Sun's first headline about Frank Bruno being sectioned, Bonkers Bruno Locked Up. It caused such a storm of protests, and in later editions, it was changed to Sad Bruno in Mental Home. In his first book, Britain on the Couch, psychologist Oliver James argues convincingly that significantly more of us are genuinely suffering from depression, anxiety, neurosis, addiction. We are 45 times more violent than we were in 1950, he says, and quite possibly 10 times more depressed. So yes, increased frankness and awareness probably is a good thing. First off, as I said, what a hilarious change of a newspaper headline. I don't really know who Frank Bruno is. I kind of remember his name. But the headline, Bonkers Bruno Locked Up, certainly is so insensitive. Yes, in the therapeutic culture, the better headline is Sad Bruno in Mental Home. And there's no doubt that it is a good thing to open up about our problems so people can help. But sadly, many mental health experts cannot help since they do not present the gospel or have any conception of true biblical change in a biblical worldview. But I'm not quite sure if we really have more people today suffering from depression, anxiety, addiction, and the like. These and other problems have always been with us because we are sinners who live in a fallen world. We are just talking about it a lot more. And I think there are many folks who have normal struggles in normal life that we have now labeled as abnormal. But I would agree that it's not all bad that we're willing to look at our interior lives more than in the past generations. The author continues, But is there also a way in which we are overdoing all this? Are we creating a climate where we are prone to pathologize our every thought and in the process persuade some of the mentally healthy into unhealthy introspection? Where once people might have thought they were unhappy, nowadays they are more likely to worry that they are clinically depressed, 
or neurotic or manic or suffering from any number of new conditions like shopping addiction or general anxiety disorder. Then it's off to a GP to be diagnosed and perhaps prescribed antidepressants like Prozac. Put the patient on vitamin P, as one American doctor put it to me. Now, I couldn't have said all that better myself. This describes the therapeutic culture to a T. I have always said that we have lost a view of problems being on a spectrum. Instead, everything is a mental illness or mentally unhealthy. We don't think in degrees anymore. And that plays into the hands of the mental health experts and the pharmaceutical companies. Yes, if you are simply unhappy, now you're clinically depressed. This is the extreme nature of a culture that claims to simply want to help people. We now, in our culture, have a whole month dedicated to mental health every year, sending us the message that we all have mental problems. Okay, I'm trying not to rant. So let's get back to the next paragraph. Tina Bartholomew from Leeds is 41 now and says she felt under pressure to take antidepressants when five years ago she went to see her doctor because she felt she needed some time off work. I'd never been to the doctors about anything like this before, but I'd left my husband and I was having trouble finding accommodation for myself and my teenage daughter. I had a very demanding job as a head teacher as well. The final straw came when she had an accident in a restaurant. A light fitting fell off a wall and hit her on the shoulder. I got treatment, but the pain kept me awake at night. In the end, lack of sleep combined with everything else started to get on top of her. She went to her GP because she wanted a few weeks off work. I just needed a bit of time, a bit of counseling maybe, somewhere to live, really. My GP suggested an antidepressant. I didn't want to take tablets, but I didn't feel I had much choice. I needed the time off work, which seemed to be dependent on my taking Prozac. One of the hallmark features of the therapeutic culture is medication for our emotional and mental disorders. As I've said on many episodes, there are certainly people who benefit from psychotropic medication. But we are also finding out more and more that way too many people are on medication whether by their own choice or from a doctor's pressure. Now I find this a very interesting example. This woman just wanted a bit of counseling, some time off, and really just some place to live. Now isn't that exactly what the church and good biblical counseling can provide? But instead, she got put on antidepressants. Well, the story continues. A view from the other side of the desk. Dr. Simon Atkins is a GP at the Fish Ponds Health Center in Bristol who sees many more people for depression than he used to. He doesn't think all of them are depressed in the sense that they need to be treated. General unhappiness has now been turned into an illness, he says. People come to my surgery and say, I'm very unhappy about so-and-so, and I've heard that there are these pills I can take. Maybe they've been bereaved or something. Atkins says he often gives them a couple of weeks off work and then they feel better. But he also says that there's a temptation to follow through with what they're requesting and give them pills. Then you've got somebody on antidepressants unnecessarily, and they do have side effects. 
and they're committed to them for four to six months, which is the recommended time. And really, they were a bit miserable because their wife had walked out on them or they lost their job or something. I think it is harmful to medicate yourself through something which is as natural as the grieving process. Oh, I love that last sentence. And this is very fascinating. I, too, have talked to many doctors over the years who feel this kind of pressure to medicate everyone who is just unhappy. And it's only gotten worse with all the bombardment advertising on television. Because of the therapeutic culture, doctors just can't say, go home and wait a couple of weeks and you'll feel better. That common sense approach may be considered malpractice today. It is sad to me that so many people are on medication unnecessarily. And this doctor nails it by saying that it is harmful to medicate yourself through what could be normal grief. Again, what great insight. General unhappiness has now been turned into an illness. We need to push back on the therapeutic culture as Christians by showing a better way. Normal sadness is part of life in a fallen world. Struggling and suffering is a process that helps us grow in Christ. Simply medicating that away may not only be physically harmful, it can be harmful to our souls as well. As biblical counselors, we can give the good news of the gospel and walk with someone through their hard times and suffering. The article continues, After several days on Prozac, Tina, we're back to Tina, says she became very depressed. I started shaking. I couldn't stop crying. I'd go to bed crying and wake up in the morning crying. When it became too much, she telephoned her doctor. A different GP told her that she should have been warned that sometimes antidepressants make you feel worse before they make you feel better. So I stuck with them, but I was still crying six or seven weeks later. So I went back and said, look, Prozac obviously isn't for me. The locum she saw agreed, but put her on another antidepressant called Cipramil. At that stage, Tina says, she just wanted to feel better, so she took them. At first, I did feel a bit better, but then I started having panic attacks. I'd never had a panic attack before. I started being really scared of enclosed spaces. I had to force myself to go out of the house. She considers herself fortunate and that having a daughter to look after forced her to leave the house every day. But the panic attacks continued, so I went back to my doctor, and we agreed that I should stop taking the tablets. We reduced the dosage slowly. Now, this is just one example, so this doesn't mean that no one should be on antidepressants ever. But it is an experience shared by many who have side effects and sometimes serious side effects from different types of psychotropic medications. The therapeutic culture gives little thought to side effects or other problems that it creates. It just tries a different med or treatment. Why? Because the goal is about making people feel better any way possible. So just like the doctor said, you sometimes have to feel worse to feel better. But what if the problem isn't really depression? What if that is a surface symptom that is calling us to dig deeper to the heart? Sadly, the therapeutic culture doesn't typically see the person that way. Okay, back we go to the article. Marjorie Wallace is the chief executive and founder of mental health charity SANE. 
She has worked as a campaigner in mental health for more than 17 years. And when we talked about the possibility of unhealthy preoccupation with mental illness, she referred me, not surprisingly, to the thousands of people battling against crippling feelings struggling to get help, part of which probably is deep melancholy. There are profound emotions that we can't eradicate as long as we have death and suffering and disappointment that are now included in the umbrella description of depression and therefore seen as suitable for treatment. She sees this primarily as a labeling or language issue. You say down, I say depression. Now, this is exactly what gives fuel and strength to the therapeutic culture. Once you start to critique it and say it has gone too far, it pushes back with all the help it's given mentally ill people. But at least this mental health expert is willing to be honest and admit that we aren't encouraging people to see that problems are a part of life in this fallen world. Well, that's not how she said it exactly, but that's my application of what she said. While she says we can't eradicate these difficult emotions as long as we have death and suffering and disappointments in this world, the therapeutic culture proclaims that it can. It is driven by a utopian view that we can make everyone feel better in this world all the time. It refuses to acknowledge the stubborn problem of suffering because it has no category for sin and its effects. Well, we're getting close to the end of the article, so we continue. As American psychologist Richard Gist puts it, there's a societal trend towards treating angst as if it were anxiety, disequilibrium as depression, discomfort as if it were distress, and all pain as if it were pathogenomonic. I don't know if I said that word right. This is in part because there has been a fundamental shift in our expectations. We now believe we have a basic right to, as the line about Prozac went, feel better than good. We talk a lot about quality of life and about well-being, the buzzword of the decade writ large across health pages everywhere. The very meaning of wellness has been changing, notes a recent Henry Center report. No longer is it just being free from disease. Instead, there's been a shift in focus on health through fitness to well-being. One should be well in every sense, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Well-being suggests quality of life, self-fulfillment, serenity, development. As we move into a post-materialist society, such well-being is becoming increasingly important to us. Wow, that is so good. And from an American psychologist to boot. He is right that we have shifted our expectations as a society. The therapeutic culture has led us down the road to believe in quality of life and wellness, where we can only enjoy our life if it's easy, comfortable, safe, and warm. Why can't we enjoy life being hard? Life as a sufferer? Because we don't think we have to or deserve to. Again, we have treatments available to fix all that. And by the way, the therapeutic culture tells us that we should have a happy marriage or shouldn't be in that marriage at all, amongst other things. Well, here's more. During his career, Gist, a public health psychologist with the Kansas City Fire Department, 
has been at hand to help with disasters like the collapse of the Hyatt Regency Skywalks in Kansas in 1981 and the United Airlines crash in Iowa in 1989. He feels strongly that our shift in focus is both damaging and ultimately undermining. We have gone from being a society that expects life to be a set of struggles and challenges to which we must respond and over which we have a personal sort of challenge to achieve some good, and evolved into a world where we have we are born with an entitlement to an unfettered, uncomplicated life, free of angst and anxiety. There is, he says, an expectation now that we ought to be able to fix everything, just as particularly well-placed to know how impossible that ex- expectation is to meet. If there's one thing that the incredible calamities in my work have taught me, he says, is that we have to start out with a simple understanding in life. Not everything can be fixed. Amen to that. And that's a hard pill for me to swallow since I'm a fixer by nature. I certainly have imbibed some of the therapeutic culture that expects that we are able to fix everything. This shift has certainly become even more profound since 2003. We have an entitlement to an unfettered, uncomplicated life. Well, just a bit more. Just rails against what he sees as our obsession with the need for therapeutic or medical intervention in even the most extreme of situations. I'm just drafting a paper with a British colleague in which we suggest that most interventions that people respond to positively are likely to be the nonspecific impacts of presence, concern, compassion, and simple instrumental assistance. The kind of stuff you learn from grandma, not grad school. In other words, the kind of support you can get from family and friends. There is a lot you can do that is helpful, supportive, valuable, and even vital, he says. But you do not have to masquerade as indispensable saviors, heading people off from the inevitable disaster. The influence of Freud on society just says has meant that our discomforts in life are seen to require external professional intervention to resolve them. They are not just simply aspects of living. We treat them as if they are injuries or illnesses. Well, sadly, I'm not going to have the time to get through all of this excellent analysis of the therapeutic culture, but this is a great place to end. What just is describing is exactly what the church not just grandma, should be providing to people. Presence, concern, compassion, biblical counseling, care, the love of Christ. Yes, support you can get from family and friends as well. But the church is family. Christian brothers and sisters and friends are there for us. The therapeutic culture is an imitation to a Christ-centered culture, to the church. Instead of making the professionals into our saviors, we should be pointing people to the only savior. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. 
It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.